Hello, and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show into our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. So good morning, everyone. Happy Saturday in uh, mid-July, and I hope you are enjoying your summer and hopefully taking time out for um, podcasts when you can. Um, Today we um, have a very special treat for you. We have a, um, I won't say repeat offender, repeat guest. Um, We do not have a crime-related guest, but, you know, um, we we talk about the um, aftermath of crime and tragedy. And our guest is... um, a, a beloved new friend who's become uh, familiar with Lady Justice and Imagine Publicity through her work recently, and it is uh, we are very very pleased to to have Dr. Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, originally from Glastonbury, Connecticut, who is a um, a very skilled psychologist whose expertise is in suicide prevention. Um, and primarily as a result of um, having experienced it in her family with 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 her brother uh, Carson. So um, we talked about um, the suicide epidemic of people, um, ma- um, males um, in middle age, in our initial show. And there's so much more information to share um, with regard to other aspects and. I know that Delilah, you have you have been treated to um, a lot of knowledge uh, by by helping uh, Sally recently. So um, I think this is going to be a very informative show. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely, and it's been it's been a total joy working with with Sally. And I think I'll just give a big plug for her brand new podcast. It's um Yay. it's called Hope Illuminated. Mm-hmm. Hope Illuminated, and you can access it on iTunes and subscribe there, and also um, leave a review. It's a great show, and we've got a lot more coming. So, it, it yes, it was it was such an honor to to be with her and and help record and produce these um, podcasts. So, it's something for everyone to look forward to. And then later on in the show, Sally, make sure you plug it again. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Welcome, welcome again to Shattered Lives. Um, You you know, um, people always, especially on this show, we always want to be cutting edge, and that's my kind of modus operandi here. And I, you know, uh, that's what I like to do is I like to find people that have the latest and greatest information in order to help our listeners. And um, so today, we we are going to focus on um, not only educating our listening audience um, who deal with, with with suicide. I mean, homicide survivors, missing persons, anyone that that deals with crime, I'm sure deals with thoughts uh, of suicide here and there. But we also want to focus on today, Sally, um, what you have 
for other counselors, mental health professionals that deal with suicide on a daily basis because isn't the field ever evolving and there's new new tools and new things out there and maybe what they're doing is is not the best way to approach things. Is that right? Yeah, so I just want to start off with a little bit longer expression of gratitude to my, my two new great women friends who've really helped uh, me um, get this podcast launched and to kind of welcome me in, into the world of podcasting. I'm, I'm very grateful for our friendship and your support, so thank you. And yes, I'm very excited to have this opportunity to speak to my fellow mental health professionals because... While I did have excellent training in graduate school and actually sought out special training um, for suicide risk assessment and management, what I have learned in the last 12 plus years since my brother's death has totally, completely changed the way I think about uh, suicide intervention um, and recovery for people. And that's really what I want to share today. I um most, um, I would say most mental health professionals don't know what they don't know. They, they feel like they got some training somewhere along the way. Maybe it was part of an abnormal psychology class back in graduate school many years ago. Uh, maybe they went to a little workshop at some point. Um, but most of the training that, we, that mental health professionals receive, if they receive anything related to suicide risk assessment, management, and recovery, is largely fear-based. Uh, it, and it creates this dynamic between clinician and, and client that uh, really is counterproductive. It really ends up driving a wedge uh, in a relationship where um, empathy and compassion and dignity and, and empowerment are more effective. Uh, and so that's, why that's what I'm here to talk about today. Well, yeah, that, that certainly sounds, um, that sounds great. Um, can can you can you let us know like when somebody goes goes to college and university to prepare to be a counselor and there are many there are a plethora of those, um you know masters in social work there there are mental health counselors there's there's many different varieties kind of like kind varieties but are they do they primarily get a generalist uh, you were saying, like, get a generalist education. How many people actually go in and and uh, get their expertise or focus in on the topic of suicide as you have? Very, very few. So it's not anything that's usually required as a full course or, um, you know, I teach an adjunct, you know, elective two-credit class, you know, um, it's not something, and it sh- and it needs to be. It needs to be highlighted because this is the number one fear clinicians have. It's the number one area of liability, and this is life, you know, the life-saving part of our work. Um, so there's many of us on a national level that are really trying to advocate for higher standards for mental health training. Um, mostly, what people are required to do is some form of risk assessment. Um, that's really focused on uh, on safety and how to document so you don't get sued. And, you know, these pieces are important, but it doesn't train professionals on how to actually help people through their suicidal despair, um, how, to, how to be with them and have them help them really use evidence-based therapy um, that's always evolving um, to, to help manage this uh, crisis and then help people make meaning of it. You 
suicide is just thought of as some kind of symptom of something else like depression. And so let's just focus on the depression. New models of thinking are like, no, actually, we need to put what this suicidal despair is about for that person under the microscope to better understand. And the clinicians today that are, are you know, really moving this field forward are the ones um, that are really, really listening to the people that they're serving, really appreciating what's working and what's not working. And when we're doing that, we're finding that some of the things we used to hold up like best, as best practices, like contracting for safety, are actually not very effective and might even be harmful. So, um, so we need um, to relook at what we've been taught how to do and, and uh, maybe do some different things. Is it, is it um, if I were to boil it down to a couple of elements uh, in terms of what you're saying, is it the difference in approaches being proactive versus reactive perhaps? Um, or no? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. I think, I no. think some, you know, many times people will find themselves in a first um, session with a client who is suicidal uh, and, and they need some tools to come out of their pocket to deal with that crisis. So um, my main message is that clinicians don't have to have so much fear. When we have fear, we, we tend to, um, you know, want to just escape. And when we mm -hmm. want to escape fear, we will automatically refer. What happens to the person is they end up bouncing from, from provider to provider to hospital to provider to provider. And nobody wants to really take the time to climb into the darkness with them and really explore what's needed. So their, their experience is that nobody, nobody can help me. Nobody can help me. I just get referred and referred and referred and referred. And that has been kind of the protocol that we've taught people is that, you know, if somebody's in a suicidal crisis, you've got, you got a white hot potato them. And it's uh, very, very discouraging for the people who are, you know, at, uh, on the last limb and just want, uh, want to be helped. They want to have something that's actually going to alleviate their pain. They don't want to keep having to tell their story. Uh, of of the of the trauma over and over and over again to people. So many of us are trying to um, train clinicians in best practices so that they can move into those spaces with with some with a set of skills and tools and confidence to say, okay, um, let me walk with you for this period of time. I have some ideas of what might help. And and really the first part of this whole journey for clinicians, again, that we don't really get trained in graduate school about is a lot of self-reflection. And so I just want to start there with this podcast because um, I think we need to unpack our own baggage around these issues to be more effective with the people that we're serving. And many of us grew up in the same culture that indicates that somehow suicide is a weakness, that it's shameful, maybe sinful. Um, this is a taboo issue. It's uh, it's illogical that people are being manipulative. Like we got to work through all of that baggage before we can be fully present with people um, and figure out where that came from in our, in our own thinking about suicide and redir redirect it in a way that's far more empowering and about dignity. Is it cultural or generational perhaps? And as, as, as you know, different generations have evolved and more, more information has come forth. And like you say, you're, you're getting all this valuable information from suicide survivors that that's, that's kind of, oh, that's what my, my parents and my grandparents used to think. So now we're going to start really, like you say, listening to the survivors and carving out what works best by listening to them, right? 
Yes, absolutely. And uh, really having it be an iterative process. So we listen, they give us some ideas of what might help. We try to um, formulate some approaches around that. Then we work with our researchers to test out, is this moving the needle? Um, and all groups work together to, to really hone in on, on what's going to help the most people. Um, the other thing that I would say from the beginning is helpful for clinicians to, to think about really uh, closely is that this is not uh, an us versus them mentality. Um, we all have a story. There's hardly a family that hasn't been touched by some kind of mental health crisis and some form of suicidal thinking or behavior. Um, we all we all have a piece of this narrative in our own inner circles. So it's not us the providers that have all the knowledge and all the skills and and them you know the the people who. Are, are sick that we're trying to treat. We're all in this together. And I think that was a, a really big um, wake up call for me uh, after my brother's death is that um, we're all touched too. And, um, and that's going to cause some fear as well. But if we can, we can find our own um, circles of, of peer support and, and do our own work around these issues, we can turn those um, of despair or loss or challenge around this issue into strength of having more insight. Um, sometimes we just don't want to know. Uh, we don't want to know this is true for our family members. We don't want to know that this is true for the people that we're trying to help. And so, again, that fear keeps us from going into the darkness with them. Um, and that's, you know, these are all pieces on the front end that it's really important for clinicians to, to try to figure out. Yeah, so you have to do a lot of, like you say, self-reflection to be a, a, an effective therapist instead of referring on, on, on to other people. Um, yeah. Is um is it helpful for like for instance in your situation in order to build a rapport um to talk about your family story and d does that help somebody that's that that's going through this experience or do you kind of hold back on that I mean how do you build how do you engage with with the person so so that you can you know get past step one. So this is, again, another piece that's been very uh, controversial in the evolution of thinking about how we approach this. And in, in the early days, um, when we were thinking about, you know, transference and counter-transference and boundaries and so forth, it's a big no-no to share it, really anything about your personal experience um, in, in a clinical setting. Um, however, what the, the people who've lived through suicidal crises have told us is that they don't really trust that you will fully understand their experience unless you've had a taste of it. Uh, and so they are, um, they are desiring, they don't need your full story. They don't need to know, you know, all the details. In fact, you know, we, we run the risk of the client starting to take care of the clinicians if we go too, too deeply, but they want to know that you have some insight of what, what that darkness feels like. Um, and if, if they have that sense, their trust with you is far greater. And you also, you know, potentially, hopefully provide a model of, of recovery and hope for them that you can get through, others can get through. I was just at um, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Steering Committee this week in, in DC. And, you know, the, the protocol used to be never share anything about your personal story on the, on the lifeline. And now they've developed this whole thing uh, of warm lines where that is the purpose. You know, people call in and they know that they're going to get connected to a peer who's had a lived experience that's been similar to theirs. 
Interesting. I have to agree with that. I know in my own experience, um, I was in therapy for two years after my father-in-law committed suicide. And I know the the therapist that I, I worked with, I never got any feedback from her. I, I don't recall really getting any feedback from her. And I, I guess at the end of the two years, I thought, well, I guess I'm done here. <laughs> but, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously she did help me work through it in some way. But I think exactly what you said, Sally, if there was some sort of um, acknowledgement or, or some feedback from her, I would have I would have probably gotten through the process a lot quicker than two years. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so that's one big challenge is, uh, you know, how much to disclose, when to disclose. Uh, you know, obviously the boundaries need to be there so that the, it's really mostly about, you know, it's all about the client. Um, but that, that little bit of uh, vulnerability on part of the clinician can go a long way in, in, uh, in, in engendering some hope uh, and, some, and some deeper connection. I think for me, the other piece that's a pretty radical shift in how we think about this is moving away from fear and really um, preserving choice and dignity. And I I, want to share this quote um, from one of my uh, mentors and a resource that I really recommend for people. Um, Dr. Sean Shea has written a book called The Practical Art of Suicide Assessment. It's a must read for all mental health professionals. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, that really gives you some tools on how to ask questions during the risk assessment that are, you're much more likely to get um, really good information on. And he mm-hmm. says that people, you know, people experiencing suicidal thoughts feel that they're at the, quote, mercy of life. Um, but there's always one aspect of life that they can maintain total control, and that's a decision of whether or not they live or die. The choice for suicide thus presents a chance for dignity via the conduit, conduit of self-determination. So how do we turn that from, you know, that's the one place where they still have control to offer other aspects, other, other means of getting choice and dignity back in their lives. And I think the, 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 the evolving therapies, the evolving models of treatment um, by Thomas Joyner and uh, David Jobe and Sean Shea and Craig Bryan are really all about um, dignity, this empowerment, this restoring of dignity. And you cannot get there as a clinician with your person, if you are so fearful that they might take their life, you can never take that, take that option away from them. Um, and so how do you, how do you just say, let's put that over there to the side for a moment. That's, that's yours. Um, but let's just give this as, as David Joe said, can we just give this uh, other option a reasonable chance? Can we give this option for, for a reasonable chance? I have some ideas. So it is about, you know, they feel like a total lack of control or being able to make, you know, a safe decision. But like you say, the ultimate one is deciding that you want to live versus not, right? That's right. And so, and you, you know, we, we can't take that away from people. They always have that option. So that this fallacy that if we, you know, uh, take away their rights and lock them up in a hospital for a couple of days is somehow going to cure them. It, it won't. And in fact, it, it often leaves people far more demoralized than before the quote unquote treatment. They, they feel like their rights have been stripped away. Um, they feel totally out of control. And um, often, you know, what's been well documented is that suicide risk and suicide rates increase after hospitalization. Now, if that was truly something that was helping, 
we would see mm-hmm. suicide rates go down, not up. Um, right. And, and also because that forced treatment piece is so destructive for people, um, they become far less trustful of anyone who is, you know, out there, you know, in a professional realm trying to quote unquote help them. So many of us are kind of looking at all of all of that and making hospitalization, uh, you know, involuntary hospitalization, an absolute last resort because of the risks we run um, for people feeling that that was worse. That experience was worse than what I was experiencing before. Would you be able to just um, give us a sort of a, a thumbnail sketch about the sort of the old, the old style of doing things like when someone is, you know, at that very acute phase and um, they, they're reaching out for help, they're calling 911. What might of, if you, you can just give us a little guideline, what might have typically happened a few years ago, and this is, this is what, what would happen versus what you're espousing now? Yeah, I'll give you a, a couple of examples. And I'm going to paint worst case scenario. I know it doesn't always go this way, but it goes away <laughs> goes, goes away for a lot of people. And then I'll okay. share with you some, some new models that I've uh, experienced firsthand. Um, so the old way would be uh, so somebody calls 911. Say somebody um, is threatening suicide in their home and their partner calls 911. And then the next thing to happen are, um, you know, the police with lights and sirens are coming into the neighborhood. And all the, you know, the neighbors are geeking out their windows, like what's going on, you know, at the Smith's house, what's happening, um, you know, gossipy stuff. And then because the police have to treat it as a crime scene, it's often the case that if the person's not in a medical emergency, they will cuff and stuff them. So they'll bring them out of the house in handcuffs and put them in the backseat of the cruiser, which, again, is very public to see, to see um, very, you know, disconcerting for the poor person who's experiencing their worst day ever already. Then the police will come bring them to the ER, um, where often this person will sit there for hours, because if they're not in a medical emergency in that they've physically harmed themselves already, other emergencies will get triaged ahead of them. So the appendicitis, the the pregnancies, the heart attacks, and they'll just sit there for hours and hours being unattended to uh, and, and agitated. And also law enforcement is usually required to stay with them. And so that law enforcement's now agitated too, because they want to be out on the street doing the thing they do best, you know, fighting crime. And, and, so uh, they, so they have to stay with them for hours at sometimes. the ER? Yeah, it's a very long process. It's a very long process to transition out of law enforcement into the care of the ER so it's just not working for anybody. And the ER docs also are not excited about mental health crises patients because they're really good at fixing big medical issues quickly. You know, you come in, you stop the bleeding, you stabilize the heart rate, whatever you're doing, but you do it quickly and you're solving problems in, in a very decisive and quick way. Mental health situations are complicated and they take a long time and you've got to call down some other consults and it just kind of jams up the emergency room system as it currently is. So everybody's frustrated at this point. Then finally, you know, if the person finally gets wheeled back to a little, uh, a little room where they're stripped of their clothes, um, often put in a, a flimsy little hospital gown. And sometimes there's a, a stranger that's, uh, that's now sitting with them, observing them, some kind of hospital security guard and I've even seen the case where sometimes they're handcuffed to the gurney. Um, there is nothing in that whole scenario that 
has anything to do with compassion, uh, decreasing agitation, giving people hope. It is completely demoralizing. Uh, and then finally, they might be wheeled to a psych ward where, you know, they can hear the, the lock of the doors behind them as they're now, you know, basically held hostage sometimes against their will during this period of time. And again, I just paint worst case scenarios. There's certainly lots of other hospitals that, that do a far better job. Um, so I'll contrast that with what I experienced um, in Phoenix uh, through RI International's crisis uh, unit. They have, they're now setting up urgent care uh, facilities for people in suicide crisis that are completely different. And, uh, and, the, and so it goes something like, that. so same thing, somebody's in acute mental health crisis, whether they're psychotic or acutely suicidal, um, 911 is called. This time, however, the police bring them to a, a, a waiting room on the side of the urgent care facility where it just takes three minutes to process the, the transfer paperwork and make sure that the person doesn't have any weapons on them or anything, and they transfer them, and boom, the uh, law enforcement officers are back on the street within three minutes, which works really well for them. Wow. And then, yeah, so then the next thing that happens is instead of, you know, the hard chairs and the cold um, kind of clinical uh, atmosphere that's often the case in most emergency rooms, this waiting room um, is lovely. So there's recliners everywhere. Um, so they're, they're brought to the recliner. They're given a blanket. Um, peers come by and offer water or other things. Um, sometimes there's these therapy-assisted uh, dogs that are walking around that are just everything about that next step is how do, we calming. Make you, yes, how do we make you comfortable? Um, what do you need? Because you are the center of this conversation right now. Not our as providers, you are. How do we get you relaxed enough so we can figure out what's going on? It's, it's so much more compassionate, so much more beautiful. And they, they are only... It's still involuntary um, because the, uh, for these extreme cases, there are, you know, there are some needs to kind of stabilize the situation. Um, but the, the goal is in 23 hours, we've got a plan for you. Uh, and we're going to work collaboratively with you, figure out what that plan is going to be. And, you know, sometimes they need housing. Sometimes they've got some kind of major family disruption happening and they need to kind of sort some of those things out. So right out of the gate, the focus is on how do we start planning a life for you that's worth living? Um, and it's just a totally different experience. You can see the people um, feeling respected. You know, there's just this sense of, okay, I'm, this is super scary. I'm super scared. It's an overwhelming experience to go through this, but I feel like you've got my back, which is what it should be. Uh, it's a 180 degree turnaround. It's, it sounds it sounds very patient centered. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's great. That's great. Um, with, the, the, go ahead. I just want to say, I, I, paint, I paint a dark picture um, because it, it, there really is a contrast now. And my goal is, you know, by the end of this, I'm hoping that the mental health providers on the call will be eager, will be interested in learning more about how they can serve better and will be excited and not fearful. And so um, I'm going to share uh, some, some good news. And these are three truisms that... Um, Dr. David Jobs has written about in his book, uh, Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicide, which is also a must read for anybody, for really any mental health clinician, because I can guarantee you, even if you're trying to screen people out for suicide, suicidal thoughts and behavior, they're there. They're just not telling you. So here's the three truisms. Number one, most people who are suicidal do not want to die. They don't want to die. They're just miserable and they're hopeless 
and they're overwhelmed, but they don't want to die. Most of them just want this, this unbelievable pain. Ed Schneidman called it psychic, this, this inescapable darkness. They just want that to end. And dying is the only way that they've figured out how to make that stop. Number two, uh, the other good news is most people who are living with suicidal thoughts and behavior do tell others so that we can identify them. The problem is because we don't want to know this about people, we're often missing the communication. Um, also, people who are suicidal um, do not necessarily tell us directly. They tell us through coded uh, types of communication. So it's easy to dismiss. It's hard to, to pick up if you don't have this as a hypothesis in your head. Um, and again, like I mentioned before, we just don't want to know. We get scared. Um, but if we're cued into the fact that most people will give us these cues, they will tell us in veiled communication, it's the, it's the moment the brain goes, did I hear what I just heard? And we make a choice right there. Nah, and you turn away. Or you know what? I better check it out. And you lean in. Um, and so that's Number two is that we have, if we can train ourselves to lean in and say, excuse me, what did you just say? That sounded concerning. Can you tell me more instead of dismissing it? And number three, the thing that I think gives people hope is that most people who are living with suicidal thoughts and behavior, um, they have psychological things going on. So like depression or addiction, they have social issues going on like divorce and financial stuff. Um, their methods of coping, maybe they, they haven't been taught these, or maybe they forgot them, or maybe old methods of coping aren't working. These are all things that mental health professionals have been trained to tackle. We know what to do if we can frame some of these things with the skill sets that we already bring to bear. So, again, I will do this throughout the podcast. Everybody just take a deep breath. Um, living with suicidal <laughs> thoughts is a common thing that people go through when they have unbelievable pain. Um, everybody take a deep breath. We can get through this. There are things that we can do to help. Yeah, those are great things. Are you, Sally, um, did people, regards number two, because I wrote, wrote these down, do they, even if it's through coded messages, and, I, you know, I guess you have to be able to know the person or read the signs, um, do they necessarily tell their best friend, or would it be somebody that there's not, not really close to, or would it be anybody? I mean, how do they how do they decide who to tell, even if it is a veiled message? So one of the the trainings that many of us have had um, by a company called Living Works, uh, the training is called Assist. Um, so if you are not a mental health clinician, or if you are, and just kind of want a a really good training on how to um, pick up on some of these clues, I would I would recommend Assist or QPR or some of these other trainings. They call them invitations. So it's, uh, I call it, it's like casting a line out. They're going to cast a line out to somebody they might think is trustworthy of this conversation. And it, it's the kind of communication that just kind of raises the hair on the back of your neck. And they feel, oftentimes people who are doing this casting the line piece, uh, they're testing the waters. Are you going to be able to handle this? Are you ready? Can you, are you prepared? Are you going to come back? at this with judgment or fear or repercussions, or are you going to come back at me with empathy? If the communication is missed, right, they cast a little line out there, they say something like, you know, it's sometimes just too hard. I really lost hope that anything will work out anymore or these other kind of veiled things. Um, if, if the person who they're saying it to doesn't pick up on it, that's sometimes even worse than if they say the wrong thing, because it's like you just told, I just told you something super important and you didn't right. respond at all. 
I feel even it. more yeah. invisible. I feel even more worthless um, because you, you're not tuning in. Um, so that's really a critical part of the whole piece is that that hypothesis that people might be going through a suicidal crisis needs to be always there. And it's kind of morbid, but, if, you know, especially if you're working with people who are living with depression or addiction or trauma or these or, or major life challenges, like a very difficult divorce or a very difficult and maybe public financial change. Um, these are common things that happen to people when they get overwhelmed. It's just too hard. So if we don't have this hypothesis in our head that maybe they're thinking about suicide, we're not going to tune into these invitations to engage in a bigger discussion about it. And if we're on the receiving end and we're, we're, we're too frightened to know what to do about it too, you know, there's, there's that. Absolutely. Um, that goes back to the whole, I don't want to know, don't tell me. Cause then I got to, then I got to, then I have you know, to do I, something. I got to do something and my fears through the roof. And so I'm probably just going to get you referred. <laughs> um, so I, that, so that's my next piece. What do you do if they say yes, if they acknowledge, if you get to a point in this conversation where you say something like, Hey, I've, I've noticed you've gone through a number of these life changes and spell them out. And here's some changes I've noticed in your mood and in your behavior. You know, sometimes when people feel this overwhelming pain or go through all these really difficult changes, sometimes they think about suicide as a way to kind of escape their misery. And I'm wondering if this is true for you. That's kind of a really nice way to phrase, frame the question around compassion and care and non-judgment and so forth. If they say yes, be prepared how you're going to respond to that. And um, here's what you should not do. Number one, don't freak out. Number two, don't whip out your no suicide contract. Don't die on my watch signed here. Not helpful. And so many oh. of us, I think, I think 80% of clinicians are trained to do that and still do that. Don't do that. Um, you know, and don't try to like champion living saying, Oh, but you know, you've got so much going on. You are, you're just, you're so beautiful. You're so smart. You have such a lovely family. If you go and that's right a to turn off too, right? Right. Total they turn don't off. feel that way. That's right. That's not their experience. Um, again, assist says things like you listen to the reasons for dying, right? Create some, um, a holding place for these, uh, for the person to share this hopelessness and to really like spend time there so you have a full grasp of all the things that are contributing to this despair. So you listen to the reasons for dying and you listen for the reasons for living. They'll, they'll give them to you. They're still here. So there's some ambivalence. There is some thing that's keeping here. But you don't intersect that. You don't interject that. You are listening for it. And when you hear it, you can reflect it back. But don't champion the reasons for living. It really discounts the, the level of pain they're in. So those are the don'ts. What you do do when someone says, yes, I'm thinking of suicide, the first words out of your mouth should be gratitude. Thank you. you know, thank you for sharing this with me. Thank you for trusting our relationship. That, that little piece of connection there does goes such a long way. Uh, the person is, is, is fearful that you're going to react and have judgment and take their rights away. When you come back with, with gratitude, that is a, a really important part of connection. Um, and then the number two thing is, uh, is be collaborative. And, and again, I'm going to suggest uh, David Job's book on collaborative assessment and management of, of suicide. When we can come alongside someone and say, you know what, I, I don't really, uh, I don't know fully what you're going through, but I'm here with you. And I'm so glad you told me um, together, we're going to figure this out. I'm going to persevere with you until we've figured out how to alleviate this misery that is driving 
your, you know, your thoughts of suicide right now. And I have some ideas. That's the last part. So gratitude, number one, collaborative, <laughs> number two, and mm-hmm. provide, provide some hope. Say, I have some ideas. So let's just, you know, let's start here. Um, and then, then you bring out your evidence-based tools uh, and you start seeing what's a good fit and you get feedback from the client. Does this work? Does that work? What, what's what's going to be helpful? And uh, can you give this opportunity a reasonable chance with me? Sally, do you ever ask them in, the, in that moment or do, do you – do you have, you know, prescriptions in the house? Are you, you know, will are your knives? I mean, uh, in, 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 term, in terms of that, to try to get them away from any kind of tools that would help them do harm. Absolutely. And I would say that is definitely, um, it's a must in the conversation about suicide risk. But I wouldn't pull that out as the first thing. Um, okay. I, would, I, would, I would have some more exploration of the pain and the despair. Really, again, if you don't spend time there, you're going to miss very important information, only about what's driving the pain, but also about possible ways out of it. Um, so really, and, and jumping quickly to the how do we keep you safe message, which is an important one, but it's only part of the equation for what clinicians can do with people, um, bypasses this uh, shared experience around the pain. Um, the, the kind of looking at this hopelessness together piece, which uh, is hard to do, but is so important in creating that rapport um, and also the full perspective of all the things that are going on. Um, one of the ways to do that is, you know, can you tell me about the worst point? Again, this is a, a David Job suggestion question. Um, can you tell me about the worst point? Spell that out for me. Give me a frame by frame. How often do you experience these worst points? You know, all of these um, types of questions can really flush that out. And then once the person has agreed to, um, you know, let's try to figure out some kind of, we're even getting away from this phrase safety plan um, because it's not just about safety. It's not just about keeping the person safe. It's really about bringing them back to life, bringing them back to a life worth living, you know, building up on those things that will no longer, will prevent them from being suicidal in the future and really give them that full joy and engagement in life that everybody deserves. Um, Give them a quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just having them be able to white knuckle through, you know, pretty much a horrible life experience, but finding things that, you know, bring them joy and love and purpose and all the things that we should be experiencing in this life. Um, So that said, I will address the the lethal means piece because it is, it's one of the most concrete and effective things that we can do uh, to help people survive the white hot crisis of suicide. Um, we know that if people have access to and familiarity with lethal means, um, they're more likely to use it, and the more lethal those means are, the more likely they're going to die. So, um, you know, I, I live in Colorado, and uh, we are a very fierce Second Amendment right state, and having these conversations with families and individuals that feel very strongly about the importance of having um, guns in their home for protection is difficult, Um, but it's not impossible. And again, if you come at it from the point of being collaborative and understanding that it's temporary and from a safety perspective, probably the better choice is just to remove the guns from the home or keep them really, really secure during the period of time where you've got a loved one in your house who is thinking of dying. Um, having it right there uh, just increases the chances that when they get that moment where they're ready to act upon it, it's just harder. 
uh, harder to access. So getting the same thing with medication. A lot of, a lot of people have stockpiled um, pain medication and other forms of medication that, you know, in large doses is lethal. So let's get that out of the house. Um, how, how do we make our homes less uh, or safer, I guess, against suicide is a really important part of that collaborative conversation that clinicians can have with families, actually, not just the individual, but it's really important to, to involve uh, the families who are trying to be supportive on how they can best support their loved one, and this is one of those ways. If they come back to you with, oh, it's all, oh all my guns are always locked up under lock and key, and they don't know, I mean, that, that's not a good response, right? Well, you kind of have to work with people where they're at, and, uh, you know, you, it's their, again, their choice. They're going to they're gonna decide what they're going to do. So okay. sometimes I'll say things like, um, say it's a kid, right? Say it's a teenager who is uh, living with suicidal thoughts. I say, um, do you think, how sure are you that your kiddo doesn't know where that key is? Mm-hmm. Do you remember snooping around the house when your parents were at home? Did you ever find things that they thought they had hidden from you? Right. It just gives people pause. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't know for sure that they don't know where the key is. You don't know for sure. Are you willing to take that risk? Is it worth more to you to keep the guns in the home? And maybe it is, you know, or for this period of white hot crisis, perhaps, you know, a, a better decision would be to give them to another family member or sometimes now even certain police stations or certain um, actually gun, uh, 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 gun ranges will take mm-hmm. the gun for a period of time and they'll just lock them up in a locker um, mm-hmm. You know, because people have issues about releasing their their property, uh, especially this type of property, to in other places. So, um, there are uh, there's a website called Means Matter. Uh, it's um, developed by the Harvard, Harvard Public Health, and they have all kinds of best practices there on how to do this. There's actually a uh, a training called Lethal Counseling for Lethal Means counseling for access of lethal means or something like that. COM is the acronym. And it helps clinicians frame these conversations so that they, they'll have much more likely uh, a positive outcome um, rather than, uh, in, you know, increasing distrust that somebody's going right. to, you know, well, that's, again, yeah, that's really right good information. That's yeah. good information to have. What, uh, um, maybe this is going backwards a little bit, but I'm just wondering, with the this whole um contracts um i can think of you know when you're a teenager and you sign this contract with your parents that oh yes i'm gonna i'm in terms of a curfew or i'm not gonna drink when i go out you know to this prom or on this date what is what's so in i mean it sounds so ineffective to me in the first place um can you just give us a, a little idea about the whole idea of doing the contracts and how they're ineffective and, and what it, which tools are much more effective to replace these contractual agreements that a lot of people break. I mean, look, marriage is a contract, and people break that all the time. Right. Well, I mean, again, the way contracts are written vary greatly from clinician to clinician, but the, the form of the contract, of you know, you're not going to die under my care, signed here, is – so it's such a put off to the to the most clients. They're like, so this is really about CYA, like that's your main uh-huh. concern, is that I don't die on your watch, so you you know you don't feel bad or you don't get in trouble. 
yeah, that's, you know, a bunch of, yeah. And that's legally uh-huh. binding? Oh, it's actually, um, it's actually, it works against the clinician in a, in a, in a medical legal sense, because, you know, you've got this agreement that the client's not going to die and then they die. Well, that's confusing. Um, it doesn't help the clinician at all from a legal sense, which is, you know, uh, something our, one of our favorite people in our field, Skip Simpson, um, you know, talks about is that these are not helpful in any way. Um, what's, what's more clinically appropriate and more legally protective is to, again, collaboratively come up with a, a safety agreement or a well-being plan. Um, we like those the well-being plan a little bit better because it really focuses on the positive that gives the people a stepwise progression of what they can do if they're starting to feel like those suicidal thoughts are becoming more intense or they have urges, impulses to act upon them. And it gives them very concrete things to do. So um, I'll just give you an example because I think this is so important in in, in a very very specific way that clinicians can, you know, find hope and be helpful. Um, number one, help them develop a hope kit, um, a, a, a thing, a box that they put together themselves that reminds them of their reasons for living, reminds them of the things that help them be less suicidal. And these might be relationships they have. Maybe it's pictures of pets. Maybe it's a, a goal that they still have, going back to school or traveling somewhere, spirituality or religious um, thing that they can remember to hold on to and really physically create a box where they're putting these things in. Um, there's also a virtual hope kit now um, developed really? by, yes, yeah, fantastic. And it's been very well researched by um, Thomas Jordan at Florida State University and also which is a, a research consortium for um, military and veterans interventions. And they've, so they've researched this thing and now they've released uh, it to the public, a virtual hope kit. So you do the same kind of thing, except you've got an online account. So you're uploading, you know, pictures and poems and songs and all these things that give you, uh, remind you of the reasons for living. So that's, step, um, you know, step two might be if, if the hope kit isn't working, you might um, engage in things, remind yourself of things, and commit to trying at least like three self-soothing behaviors. So if the things that usually make you less agitated and calm your, your physical being are things like taking a walk or um, playing a certain type of music or, you know, praying or uh, any of number of these things that in, in the past, they've been really good coping strategies to help you get centered again. And that's your next step. Uh, if that's not working, then you can try distracting or behavioral activating things. So, um, you know, going out and you know, playing racquetball for an hour. It might not be self-soothing, but it, it gets you out of the house. It gets you doing something that your brain has to be focused on something else. Um, if those things don't work, then number four is here's a list of 10 people you can call. How, who are your social supports? in your world that would want to know how much pain you're in. And maybe you don't get the first one. Maybe they're not home. Uh, maybe the second one's too busy, can only talk for five minutes. So you, you go through your list and you reach out to people in your world that can maybe not fully empathize, but they can just be on the other end. Uh, up from that, the next level is peer support. So instead of just kind of the people in your social network, peer support folks are people who have gone through something similar. So for people in recovery, this is calling your sponsor. For people um, calling the warm line that I discussed earlier, where they're going to get a peer supporter on the line, 
uh, finding someone who's got that lived expertise that can kind of remind you of some of the coping tools and uh, provide that um, empathy and compassion on the line. The next one is professional support, reaching out to um, and you know your your counselor or uh, you know calling a, a mental health um, agency in your community. There's also a bunch of online tools that I'll mention in a bit. And then finally, crisis support. You know, if if all else fails, um, you can call the suicide prevention lifeline. You can engage in the in the crisis text line. And really, ideally, this well-being plan should be developed with a client and a mental health provider far before, this is where your proactive thing comes into play, um, far before the suicide hits. Um, you come up with this plan at the, you know, at the beginning of treatment starting saying, should things go south here, we need a plan that is going to help you. Uh, maintain your well-being. And so let's spell it all out, you know, if, then, then, this, next, uh, so that we have that in place. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I'm in, I'm impressed by that because at least there's a progression of different different things different things you can try. And um, But I'm wondering um, a couple things. For people who are single, I'm single, I don't live with anybody. Yeah. Um, I spend a lot of time by myself, although, you know, I have work people, occasionally social things. And then there, I'm thinking there's a lot of elderly that are kind of isolated and, and whatnot. What, what, do, what should single people do if you're not engaged all of the time with other people around? And when, is, it, is it safe for somebody who is at risk to be by themselves, or do you recommend for a certain period of time that they need to be around other people until the, you know, that acute phase has passed or whatever. Yeah. Social isolation, um, psychological isolation that happens when people are experiencing suicidal despair tends to make everything worse. You get more in your head. You feel like you're, you know, nobody cares. You're, you're, you're fighting these demons all by yourself. Um, Surrounding yourself with people who can just be there who can be those safe people. They don't even have to show up and say anything. Just having them around can be reassuring. If you don't, some one, the crisis system is changing. And so increasingly um, we're finding that there are these respite centers or drop-in centers that if you, you know, you just probably think it's not the best idea that you sit in your dark apartment all day. Um, you can go to these respite centers and there are peer supporters there. You can drop in and have a counseling session. It's basically just a place to hang out in the day. Um, if you mm-hmm. don't feel like you're at the level where you need acute care and need to go rush to the emergency room, but you just want, you don't want to be alone. Um, so those are popping up. Um, there's also a couple of online tools that I'll mention. Coco is one, your support tool online, and the other is Talk Life. So you can just kind of get connected to people um, through these channels and know that they're not going to come back at you with judgment or mm-hmm. um, any kind of damaging thing. They're trying to help um, support you. Uh, so again, you can get just get connected that way. The crisis text is, is also a fast way to get support. Um, and, and even the lifeline. I mean, the lifeline is there for, for a crisis, but also there to um, help you sort through preempting a crisis. And, you know, obviously the, the less crisis we have, you know, the better everybody is. Now, if we can avert that with some strategy, then, uh, then everybody's better off. Um, the other tool that I'll mention is something called Now Matters Now. It is uh, it provides 
coping strategies for people who are having emotional dysregulation, um, and it provides what we call DBT skills. Uh, DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, is an evidence-based therapy that really helps people re-channel um, kind of desires of for suicide based on escape, in escaping it, un, unbearable emotional pain, rechanneling those to much um, better outcomes by shifting thought processes and behaviors. And the nowmattersnow.org website demonstrates these behaviors um, through videos. So you can, you know, get connected to people that way. It's a, it's a community um, that, uh, you know, everybody there has lived experience and they're, they're coaching each other through these skills, like, um, you know, how to get sensitiveness and how through the moment by shifting your thinking, concrete things people can do. Wow, are there um, are there peer groups, um, support groups of suicide survivors, and are they are they helpful at somewhere along the the process of somebody that you know has gone through suicide um, ideation or suicide attempt? I am so glad you asked that question. So this is again is a huge yes a huge paradigm shift in the okay. Okay. because before oh no you know you can't put quote unquote those people together that would be disastrous they'll learn from each other they'll copycat each other and yet when you ask the people living with suicidal thoughts and behavior what would be most helpful for you they came back with peers somebody who's gone through it they would mm. be most helpful so we had such a, another disconnect right. So, but no, no clinician, no hospital, no mental health community center wanted to be the first one to have a suicide attempt survivor support group. Um, and finally, they started um, because the demand was so great. And um, the group, there's a group down in uh, D.D. Hirsch, which is an L.A.-based um, mental health community mental health center that ha- offers a hotline. They've been leaders in in suicide prevention and intervention for decades, many people say that this is the center that birthed the whole suicide prevention and, and hotline movement nationally. Um, the first ones, um, one of the first come out with a suicide attempt survivor support group framework that they are, you know, evaluating, you know, very, very closely. And so far, the results have been incredibly encouraging. That, that sounds wonderful. Oh, it's amazing. It's a structured group co-facilitated by a mental health provider and a peer, and sometimes both people also have lived experience. Um, it's, you know, time-limited. It's it's very structured, so there's pieces that people are working through each session, uh, and it's, it's a great start. There's some there's some others that are percolating up, but that's the one that I, I, I know the most about, and then I'm, I'm, I feel very comfortable in recommending Dee Dee Hirsch, Suicide Attempt Survivor Support Group. Okay, that's great. I mean, you've given us so many resources here, and I hope that um, it's going to be available and that our, our listeners who are mental health professionals or counselors will, will take advantage of that. Is it your goal? Um, it, I know you're always in demand for doing uh, presentations across the country um, to be training or or do train the trainer kind of model with with this cutting edge information how do we get it out to people so that the whole realm of suicide prevention and treatment changes yes so that there are many great trainings obviously i'm a i'm a person of one so i i'm limited in how much <laughs> i can i help but i'm happy to help when i can there's some great trainings um amser comes from the suicide 
Center stands for Assessing and Managing Suicide Risk. Hamster is a great training. That Living Works group that I mentioned not only has the assist training, but also has something called Suicide Helps get through the suicide crisis and then understands more like what the pathway to recovery is. It's really great. Brand new training there. Um, the American Association of Suicidology has a training um, respond, re responding to suicide risk, RRSR. Um, that's a great option. Um, and then the Job's book, um, Sean Shea's book, Thomas book. These are all places where people can get some skills. The DBT, uh, Marshall Linehan has a, a, has a great book. There's things out there. We just have to make it a priority to constantly sharpen the saw, constantly improve our knowledge and our skill set. And even if we've already had training, bring it up to the front of the brain by getting some kind of continuing education every single year. Many of us get trained in CPR every single year for our jobs, and yet we rarely use it. Why don't we also get trained in the state-of-the-art best practices for suicide risk assessment, management, and recovery every single year. So it's right there in the front. We don't have to dig around for old notes that we took in graduate school 20 years ago. Um, I know I just have a couple of seconds left, so I want to make one more really important point. Okay, you you've got two minutes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and that is we cannot deny as mental health providers that we also experience suicide loss. Um, some of us have lost family members. Some of us have lost coworkers. And many people lose clients. And that is, you know, the worst fear clinicians have and it's often a very dark time afterwards. If there's legal issues, people feel very isolated and ashamed and judged. It's, it's often an event that drives people out of the field. So there is a task force with the American Association of Suicidology um, for clinician survivors. Clinicians survive some form of suicide loss, and they're amazing. Um, they provide incredible support and problem solving for those clinicians who are really struggling. Yeah, that that's really an excellent point to to make because um, sometimes the people that go through it make the best uh, providers or, or uh, tr treatment specialists, and you know I can sort of attest to that being a homicide survivor. And I just want to say that um, it, the the transmission faded out a couple of different times there when you're giving some of the resources um, in and out a little bit. So maybe if we do have um, a written list that we can provide that that will help. Um, this has been an amazing hour and jam-packed information. Um, Sally, I think this is uh, wonderful, and I, I hope that we can further uh, continue the conversation. And you are always invited back on Chatter Life because there's just a myriad of, of perspectives and information that you can provide, and it matters not. Um, what type of tragedy it is. I think suicide pervades, unfortunately, or mental health issues pervade all of our lives, and we so have to keep up on this information. So I, I do want to thank you, and thank you for everything you do for everyone. Um, I'm just blessed, blessed to know you, and hopefully we can continue in the future. Delilah? Cool. Yes, I again thank you Sally for for this hour of your time as again. Um and why don't you go ahead and give people your contact information right. and information about your new podcast. Thank right. you so much. So it's a Hope Illuminated podcast. It's on iTunes. Um, please visit my website, sallyspencerthomas.com. There you can sign up for the newsletter. You can see the blogs and the podcasts and uh, also any information that you might need if you're interested in having me come and be a speaker or a trainer. Um, you can also find me on Facebook at 
Sally, Dr. Sally Speaks. I'm on Twitter, Spencer Thomas. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, all the usual places. Would love to connect, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast. Thanks. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Sally. Um, it's it's been a great hour. So please do keep in keep in touch with us. Uh, we we want to know you know what's what's happening on the forefront, and there's always something interesting to impart. So with that. We will close out another edition of Shattered Wives Radio for this Saturday. Please do tell your friends to listen to this podcast as well as Sally's other series. And we will see you next Saturday for another episode of Shattered Wives Radio. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Delilah.